here's a little public service announcement from us at Chat 10 Looks 3. And, you know, Gwen is not twisting my arm behind my back at all as I'm doing it. <laughs> we got some Christmas goods for sale on our website if you'd like to go and um, visit it. Annabelle Crabb, would you like to tell us what we've got? Well, um, it depends how much you like the person, really. I mean, if you really like them, you could buy our book, which is, you know, um, the most glorious thing you could give another human. Uh, Well, hello. Available, well, somewhere very near you. Um, Or if you wanted something specific, Chat 10, that's, you know, reasonably priced, so it looks like you really like them, but actually you're not spending that much, um, have you considered a uh, colourful monster or bunt brooch? High quality, designed by the marvellous Gwen Blake and available right now, packed by my daughter um, and some of her friends. So there you go. Child labour was used, but um, amply recompensed in this process. There's also um, wine glasses, you know, insulated wine glasses, and um, they keep your glass of wine at your picnic nice and cool. And they're also strangely pleasing to hold in the hand. I don't know why it is, but that's a really nice shape and they've got a fairy wren on them um, okay. and we are giving some proceeds to birds. That's right. It's Bird Life Australia. It. <laughs> bird habitat cons- conservation programs. Anyway, there's tons of stuff. There's those egg thingies that chop the top off eggs um, and just lots of stuff that Gwen's got on there. So have a look. She's got this thing set up that if the product's sold out, you can jump on a wait list um, and she'll look after you. And just, yeah, while we're, he- while we're here, because this will probably be put on a podcast close to Christmas we might as well say thanks everyone for listening to us all year and for your uh, company and uh, oh yeah it's it been so such a ridiculous year thank you for you know sticking around we've been very pleased to be in your ears if not in your actual local postcode <laughs> we'll try to amend life next year but thank you oh my gosh the chatters have really saved the year in lots of ways <laughs> so anyway everyone have a good Christmas and check out the Chat Town gift shop if you need something Annabelle Crabb, I'd like to know if you've listened to my album before. <laughs> oh, my God. That story has just been absolutely making me laugh a lot. Um. For anyone who doesn't know, I'm making a joke about um, the Adele publicity tour for her new album, 30, which I have also, I must admit, only listened to one song from so far. Um, it's There's been a big story that Channel 7 paid for access uh, to to Adele for an interview, but then when the reporter got there, she asked the reporter, what did he think of her album? And he admitted that he had not yet listened to it. Um, And there's been all manner of discussion about this and why he hadn't and, you know, all the rest. It's been a huge fallout um, for the poor bloke. And in Um, his defence, he says he was emailed a link to it which he didn't recognise or didn't see and didn't think it had been sent to him and so that's why he sort of found himself in that position. It was emailed to him while he was in the air or something, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, yeah. so yeah. it's... <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want to join the pile-on of that dude, although, you know, obviously, like everyone, my first thought was, oh, my God, you walked into the Adele interview having not listened to the Adele album. Um, but I did wonder, I did think, I did feel a little bit like, you know, look, there but for the grace of God go I, not because I don't prep for things, but just sometimes things happen like you might be given somebody's book to read only a few hours before you get them or the book hasn't shown up. And so you have to sometimes cut corners. But I think when I heard that that guy said no, that he hadn't listened to the album, one of my first thoughts was, mate, you need to get better at bullshitting (laughs) that (laughs) you... Or like listen to a couple of songs in the middle of the album or something like that so you've got something to talk about. So sometimes if I get given a book really late and I don't have time to read the entire thing, I'll go to the middle and read a couple of oh, chapters. Oh, I do that too. That's so shameful and good. 
<laughs> I know. But, and then I'll skim the rest and I'll read some reviews. So I still will prep. But, I, I, you know, I'm trying my best to give the talent the sense that I have Try, you know, in an ideal world, of course, you've you've listened or read the entire thing. Um, but yeah, I just sort of thought if that had been me and I hadn't listened to it, and she said, "What do you think of my album?" I would have said, "Adele, it is just next level. I mean, your vocals are as superb as ever. Exactly. And it's an album that tells a story. And I mean, what do you hope people take from it? Like, I just would have said some stupid nonsense like that. But it's so funny because I just I got a, just a chill reading those stories because. The shame of being caught out, not prepared, is actually one of the worst shames ever. And I think, yep. like, because I don't normally do kind of celebrity interviews what, like, or whatever, whenever I do one, I kind of always over-prepare because I think no. I'm out of my natural territory. I do not want to be detected as a sort of underqualified person here. And I do, like, I do end up interviewing a lot of authors, so I never feel underqualified there. But, like, for a singer, and I have done this before, like, I've always just, I don't know much about you or your field, so I need to massively over prepare yeah do you know the ones that i find the hardest to prepare for obviously the easiest are when you're a genuine fan of somebody because you're not cramming to consume their work because mm. you're already familiar with elton john or paul mccartney or you know whoever oh, paul McCartney. Is. have you interviewed him <laughs> Margaret Atwood. I've got a McCartney story in a minute. Oh, um, the ones that are hard are very, very famous people who've been around for a really long time and who are really well loved and respected, but they're just not someone that's been on your radar. Yeah. So the person who's two people are springing to my mind. One is um, Patty Smith, right. who right. I interviewed a few years ago, and it's one of those ones where I know people would give their eye teeth to interview Patty Smith, but yeah. she's just not. I don't know. She's just a bit of a blank in my. Oh, I've God. never sort of listened to much to that indie seventies sort of New York kind of stuff. So you can't possibly fake. You can't go back and get, get familiar with somebody's forty mm-hmm. year body of work if you haven't already mm-hmm. got some familiarity. The other person for me who fell into that category was Joanna Lumley because oh, I'd yeah. never watched Ab Fab for whatever reason, really? even though I knew. Yeah, I just never watched it, even though I knew enough about it to kind of have the gist. I'd never watched any of her travel shows and I hadn't watched, I think, was it The Avengers that she was the show that she was famous for? Yeah. um, That was before my time, so I had not watched that. So I felt like, oh, God, I can't, like, I'm not going to be able to go watch, like, and get the cultural kind of. Yeah. Like if a 20-year-old today was told to interview um, Courtney Cox, you'd know that she'd start in Friends, but you don't have that kind of same sense. deep knowledge, yeah. And that puts you in a risk as an interviewer because you're running the, the terrible risk of committing some blunder that you're, some of your viewers will immediately recognise and that she'll immediately recognise but that you won't recognise. Exactly. Listening to the album is pretty basic. Exactly. (laughs) For example, with Joanna Lumley, I carefully checked before the interview, was she Patsy or Eddie? Because I knew their names, but I just wasn't sure which character her one was. Yeah, that'd be a bad thing to ask her on camera probably, yeah. Yeah, and imagine if you messed that up. Like, you know, that's just unforgivable. But I had the happy, uh, just speaking of Paul McCartney, where the being a true fan comes in helpful is um, he's brought out a book called The Lyrics, which is he's never going to write a memoir, but he's kept lots of – he's written, you know, song lyrics for his entire life and they've often pertained to things going on in his life. And so right. he's brought out this beautiful um, double sort of series of books about – and it's kind of all of the, not every song, but it's a lot of McCartney's song lyrics and then they're kind of, he writes, and he's been interviewed by a ghostwriter who's then kind of written it up, writes about the backstory of these particular lyrics and what was going oh, on at the time oh. and what was going on in his personal life, what was going on in the Beatles and all of the rest oh, of it. Oh, that's it's quite really, cool. 
Oh, it's fantastic. It's beautifully written and insightful and there's lots of new little gems um, and, you know, crossed out bits of original lyrics, lots of photographs that haven't been seen before from his personal Oh, collection. that's very cool because it's, so it's, sort of like, it's sort of like a sneaky memoir, isn't it? Like it is, where, it is. You ha- where you retain some control. It is. It gives mm. the sense of a memoir, but it's not quite a memoir. But it's um, – I very kindly was asked to review it um, by Caroline Overington, who edits the Weekend Australians books section. Oh, okay, yeah. And so that, to me, I felt like this would be hard to review if you were not f- familiar with the body of the Beatles' work and are broadly familiar with Paul McCartney's life and the tensions in the band and, and his his uh, relationship with Linda McCartney. Like, if you could bring all of that backstory to it, then you can bring a really interesting interview uh, – uh, sorry, review. And let's face it, the people that are going to read a review like that in depth are the other major – Beatles fans who are also going to be bringing that level of knowledge to it. Um, so, yeah, that was the ha- a happy occasion where, unlike Patti Smith, I felt like, yep, great, I'm bringing a lot yeah. of Yeah. Also, I like, I like those sort of sideways memoir or biographies that kind of, you know, tell you more about a person but without the obligation of doing a wholesale, you know, tell-all or whatever. Like, yeah. like that, um, I've always really loved that um, – book that that Bernadette Brennan wrote about um, Helen Garner, like the literary biography, which, you know, obviously Garner wasn't super keen to participate in a full biography, but the literary biography tells you um, a bit about what was going on behind the scenes of various of the books, which is, I found absolutely intriguing and um, and also helped me understand the books a lot better. And I, I just love that book. I think it's fantastic. And I was thinking about it the other day because I was reading Charlotte Wood's new book, um, oh, yeah. which is called The Luminous Solution. Yeah, I'm I can't, I can't look at it without um, pronouncing it like Malcolm Turnbull would pronounce it. You know, The Luminous Solution. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yes, The Luminous Solution. But great it's such a good book it's um it's kind of like a collection of essays and it starts off with some reflections about um about lockdown and sort of um creativity and she talks about um her experience as a writer in lockdown because obviously she's her work is normally quite solitary anyway but she found that she was compensating for lockdown but by trying to like cram in everything like you know making an effort to read more books, to absorb more culture, to, you know, have more Zooms with friends and whatever. And she found that it was kind of driving her kind of crazy and unable, and she was unable to find kind of like a quiet place where she could actually be creative. In the end, she got really into gardening and kind of just found some peace in another way. But right. The book then opens up into this examination of, of um, creativity and what blocks it and how you can sort of unblock it. And it's a very generous account of um, and, and kind of like there's some insider secrets there about like how to write and then um, how to unblock yourself when you reach a place where you think that the work is dead, like how to um, find life. And um, it's quite specific in parts, but the best bit is where she talks about what happened to her at various stages of writing various of her books. So, you know that book, The Weekend, that we both really yeah. liked? Um, yeah. She talks about the fact that um, she had started writing it and she's got this amazing way of explaining what it feels like to write um, a book and she says like, it's like you're you're kind of 
it's hard. You're carving out these sort of characters, and you're looking for you're looking for for what she calls a heat source or a source of light and life to drive the narrative and to make the characters alive. And she said when she was first writing the weekend, it was about three friends that were at a holiday house for the weekend, um, and. She said she worked and worked away at it and the characters, but she couldn't, she felt like it was dead. They had no reason for being there. She couldn't work out what they were doing there. There was no life to the narrative. And she said she did something that she'd never done before, which is just to stop, to walk away and just to sort of declare it dead. And she didn't look at it for six months, which she said was very stressful because she'd got a fellowship to write it, you know, and so it was just like, exactly, just like, (gasps) and then she said she was having a shower one day, and all of a sudden, she had this sort of epiphany that the reason that these women were at a beach house together was that they were, the, the beach house belonged to their friend who had died, and they were tidying it up, and that's what they were doing, and suddenly all of this life kind of flowed into the story and they all had a reason for being there and then the dead friend, because of the secrets she shared individually with all three of them, then provided this sort of muscular tension throughout the, the novel, which is exactly what I loved about it. And yeah. But how, and what I thought was really um, generous about her kind of sharing that in the detail that she did was I think if I were trying to write a novel and struggling with it, I would find such solace in the way that she writes about writing and the way that she relates it to what she consumes, like art that influences her. And she talks really specifically about some artworks that had certain effects on um, um, on her novel, The Natural Way of Things, for instance, which she also struggled with early because she was trying to write this story about um, young women detained together and she started writing about it in the present or maybe in the past and then realised that it would only make sense if it was in the future. Um, so anyway, just absolutely um, fascinating account of um, like an inside view of those books, but also a really generous kind of um, set of guidance, I guess, for people who are creative in, in one way or another. It's very funny as well. There's lots of little, you know, anecdotes and it is, um, if you have the time sometimes to put a piece of work down and leave it, that actually can be a oh, huge, 100%. Um, you know, assistance to allow your brain to kind of process it and come back to it. That reminds me, um, have you caught up at all with the Taylor Swift film where she's done the remake of an earlier oh, song? Well. So, so she's thinking of leaving something for a long period of time. So she had a song that was a huge hit, I think, in about 2012 called All Too Well, yep. which was believed at the time to be about her breakup with Jake Gyllenhaal. Yep. Um, it includes this lyric about, um, I left my red scarf at your sister's place and then you never returned it kind of thing. Anyway, she's brought out now this um, a reworking of the song closer to the original version um, that they put down in the studio. And she's made this little film that goes with it that, it that sort of lapses in and out of the song into bits of dialogue between these two actors who play her and her boyfriend who looks suspiciously like Jack <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it started this... When the song first came out, there was a bit of a, like, um, you know, because her fans are so, you know, dedicated to her, there was a bit of a, like, hate campaign of yeah. Jack But this has just revved it up. Like, so he had, when the film came out, this weekend of hate with people just weighing in to say 
give her that scarf back. So <laughs> you still got her scarf. And then including I think somebody like um, Dion Warwick weighed in to go, hey Jake, if you've got that scarf, mate, you need to give it back. I love it. It's just look, it's it's grotesquely unfair. I'm sure Jake. I mean, whatever. I'm sure Jake Gyllenhaal is, you know, not without reproach in the romantic stakes and he probably should have given the, the scarf back according to the lyrics you know um he didn't give it back because it still smelled like her which is like well yeah. you know i mean yeah. mate if you're if it's over scarf should be returned i mean that's his, yeah. his sister maggie gyllenhaal was interviewed the other day and asked about it she was like look it might be in my house i don't know <laughs> but also i mean look taylor swift i've always just i've res- really respect her um her business acumen and her refusal as a young woman to be sort of pushed around by big companies and whatever. And like, you know, yes, she's very wealthy. Yes, she's very privileged. Yes, she's had a lot of opportunities. Um, But, you know, she is a young woman who writes her own songs and who tells the man to like bugger off every now and again. And this is essentially what this album is, right? Because she lost the rights to her own recordings, she's recorded a new version of of the album Red, which is like a huge album of hers, and she's republished it. And that song, which in the first version of Red, I know this because me and my 15-year-old daughter have discussed and listened to both albums back-to-back, the old one and the new one, um... And the re-recording of All Too Well is like 10 minutes long on the album and initially it was four minutes long. And look, some of the additions are, I think you can see why they were cut out in the first place, but it certainly grist to the middle of all the Swiftians who want to pursue the yarn about Jake Gyllenhaal. And I think that album was like substantially about him. Other albums are about other dudes who have, you know, done Taylor wrong. I reckon, yeah. I reckon like a three-month romance, you know, ten years ago, I reckon poor old Jake Gyllenhaal has more than paid the price for his sake. Yeah, I think, I think so. And, I mean, yeah, exactly. But, I mean, I guess one would hope maybe, I mean, as painful and annoying as it probably is for him, that he's also an artist, right, because he's an actor, and mm-hmm. so he understands that life gets turned into yep. art. So I presume it's not going to be like one of those bad art friend things where he's like, how dare you take my story and fashion it into a... Well, I think he's, I think he's um, just keeping a low profile, which is probably about the only yeah. thing that he can do, right? And in the end, totally. what's he answerable for? He's answerable for his art, just like she is, right? And, totally. you know, people don't buy her records because they want to find out, you know, what Jake Gyllenhaal did with the scarf. They buy her records because she writes really good songs, right? And yeah. he just happens to be, you know, part of the sausage factory for that process. Just- just quietly, if he brings out an album, I will buy that to see if I can find out what he wow. does. Wow, does he even sing? Is he a, like? Is he no, musical I'm at all? Oh my god! You I don't know what happened to scarf. I have this theory in my head that there's some friend of Taylor Swift's who's like, oh my god, I know where that scarf is because I'm the person who borrowed it and didn't return it, and it's in my drawer. And Jake Gyllenhaal's been taking heat for it for a decade, but I can't say anything now. Like it's like having someone's name wrong for like too long a period of time, or when someone's calling you by the wrong name. You've left it go too long. So I oh, think that that yeah. scarf could be like in her friend Mary's drawer. Oh, for sure. And Mary's just like, I'm I mean, going to burn that so no one ever the, knows it's me. We've got the particulars on the scarf, right? Like, I mean, we know what the scarf looks like. It's a, it was it's like, red. yeah, it's a red scarf and it's like a fancy brand, right? Like it's a, you know. Well, it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Fancy God, imagine imagine the retail value of that scarf if it could be recovered. Oh. Like if you auctioned it for charity, 
that scarf could feed a third world country, surely, right? It'd be like, you know that Banksy that shredded the art oh, so someone yeah. paid a fortune and it shredded yeah. it halfway through? Yeah. That resold and it, re- it resold for an absolute magnitude beyond the original price because it's so famous. Oh, I know, that? yeah. I feel like the re- Taylor Swift red scarf, that would really sell for a lot of money. I mean, that's going to end up in some music museum kind of thing, right? Sure, or someone will make just make an N- NFT of the scarf, which would be easier, right? <laughs> What's an NFT? A non-fungible token. You know, that thing where you just now, this is the new kind of, have you seriously not heard about this? No. Sometimes, Lee Sales, it's like the new thing that drives everybody crazy. It's like the, it's like the Bitcoin of art, right? So a non-fungible token is where you create a digital, a one-off digital image of something and you sell it. And they, they're selling for billions. It's just like the most bizarre kind of new excrescence on the art scene. Oh, okay. I had never heard of that. That's like a friend of mine was amazed the other day when um, I said I'd never heard the term stroll out, as in vaccine stroll out. What? She, yeah. She was like, where have you been? I said, I don't know, but I've never heard anyone use that term. She was like, but it's endemic. I think she just is, she's on Twitter a lot. I assume that's where it gets used because I've never heard anyone in reality say it. Okay, um, I'm just going to read you the most um, expensive NFT ever. CryptoPunk hashtag 9898, part of of a collection of 10,000 NFTs, sold for $530 million on Thursday. It's the most expensive NFT ever sold. (laughs) I just assume that really this sort of thing. Yeah. Hey, I'm just on Jake Gyllenhaal still. A friend got me onto this podcast podcast called River Cafe Table 4, which is um, River Cafe is a very famous London restaurant institution um, and the owner, you know, sort of operator of it, Ruthie, is interviewing famous people who come to that cafe regularly about their their eating habits and, and about their attitudes towards food. And so I've listened to three. I've listened to Jake Gyllenhaal was episode one. Um, and he is a massive foodie and a great cook. And he, when he's ever he's flying in somewhere for a film, he will build time in to go to the local markets and to try certain restaurants. And mix someone's food. scarf. Yep, cooks a lot for his nieces. Posh Spice was one of the guests, Ooh. which was kind of interesting, given I would have thought she doesn't really eat any food by the look of it. Um, and then I think his name's Carrie Fukagama, who was the guy who was the director of the new Bond film, was one of the guests. And he was also a huge foodie and a very adventurous eater. So he talked about some of the crazy things he's eaten all around the world. Anyway, That's a really good idea. Charming. It is a charming podcast. And what I love about it is that they're people that you know we know as being famous for you know certain things and they don't really talk about that at all they just talk about their passion for food so it reminded me of how you know like with with us one of the things we like about this podcast is we talk to people often you know listeners about books and things and doesn't really matter if you have nothing in common or what you do for a job if you sort of have a book in common that you've read you've got something to talk about and food Mm. is very much like that and cooking is very much like that as well so it captures that wonderful sense of um you know, camaraderie that you can have with complete strangers if you just have this shared kind of interest. So it, it was um, really fantastic. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds that sounds awesome. I'd like to listen to that. What's it called? River Cafe Table 4. River Cafe Table 4. Um, hey, the other thing I've been holding on to, which you said ages ago at the start of the pod, about um, tell-all kind of books and having to spill your entire gut. Oh, are you about to talk about humour? 
Yes. Oh, thank God, because I was about to say, don't a bit, a bit, I really want to talk about Huma because like, if we're yes. running out of time. Okay, right, go, because you so, interviewed her. Yes, I interviewed Huma Abedin, who's Hillary Clinton's right-hand woman, and it's because she has a memoir out called Both Slash And. Um, and it's a memoir of her entire life. And it, as, you know, again, regular listeners of this podcast might know, we, Crab and I, went through a period where we were quite obsessed with her because of her scurrilous then husband Anthony Weiner, who was the American congressman who was oh just had an addiction to kind of online sex exchanges, ended up in prison over one with an underage person. Hot and, mess, hot mess. Yeah, you know, absolute disaster. Caused huge embarrassment to his wife and problems for Hillary Clinton. It was just a disaster. Anyway, we were we were always asking. What was he thinking, A, but you and I many times said, what is she thinking? She is amazing. She's beautiful. She's smart. She's got everything. Why is she standing by this doofus? Anyway, the book answers that really well. It's a fascinating book both about just where she's come from and her upbringing and her family's background um, through to how she ends up, you know, with this lifelong, she's only had one job, which is working for Hillary Clinton, mm. um, how that's happened, how she learned about, you know, how to be an advisor and a kind of right-hand person, and then the Wiener thing and how that unfolded for her and the kind of shame that was visited upon her, even though she herself had done nothing wrong. And it's a book that... Um, I found it riveting, but it also, it made me cry at times because of the stress and the pain of what she was uncovering. And the thing that was very tragic was that she had never really had a boyfriend before Anthony Weiner, and he had been her kind of first love who she'd married. And she'd agonised a bit over it because she's a Muslim, he's Jewish. She felt that her family would be upset that she was marrying outside her faith, but she loved him so much they kind of pushed through that. And they had a, a you know nice relationship in many ways. But I think the thing, the answer to the question of why, why on earth was she sticking by this dude is that she just absolutely desperately loved him. She just really, really loved him. And so initially, as, you know, people sometimes do, and, you know, she says this herself, she, she has that kind of personality type of just knock it off, Anthony, stop it. Why are you doing this? Just stop it. You're destroying everything. Stop this behaviour. And then over time, as it kind of persists, she comes to learn more about the nature of addiction and mental illness and so forth, and then she realises, I can't actually fix this. But it's very um, heartbreaking the way it kind of plays, this very private, personal stuff plays out and how I must say I ended the book feeling like, even though they're no longer married, I still felt like that she still actually does love him. Um, and then when I interviewed her, she's a really nice woman and she's just really smart and polished as well. Um, yeah, I just felt a real sadness for her over, you know, what she'd been through. Yeah, you, you sent me a little, just a little snip from the book, which was about um, when their son was born, because she was actually pregnant when all of this blew up. So she was yeah. kind of in this moment of complete joy and then had it's completely smashed by what yeah. her husband was revealed to have done, and yeah. then and then oh, I, I actually thought of, have thought about it um, quite a bit since you sent me that extract. Just about the point at which their son was born, and the headlines in all the, like it was a massive newsworthy event that she had had the baby, and all the headlines were like you know baby wiener emerges or like pop goes the, pop wiener. Goes the wiener. Oh my god. She hadn't actually, she wasn't looking at the papers at that time, she yeah. had a newborn baby, but she asked 
as you know, I did actually when my um, children were born, she asked her husband to get the newspapers from that day so they could keep them so that their child would see what happened in the news on their day of their birth. And then she looked at it months and months later and she was just so sad because it was all like unshowable to him. Yeah. Like Polo's the wiener and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so then she talks about this People magazine spread that they did about a year later or six months later, and she said it was very unlike me. You know, I've chosen a career behind the scenes because I didn't want the attention, but I wanted um, – I trusted the reporter. I knew the reporter from People, and I knew it would be a nice piece about our family and our happiness about our son, and I felt I needed one thing to be able to give my son to show – Just one thing. Oh, my God. That's just heartbreaking. Oh, One thing that I could actually show him that wasn't just full of shame. Oh, my God. It was so awful. And the other bit that was just, like, gutting, um, as anyone who has a baby will know, it's a very exciting period when you know you're pregnant but you haven't hit the 12 weeks yet and so you're holding on to that secret yeah. to then tell people and you're looking forward to telling certain people. And um, somebody leaked that she had, you know, been to the doctor and was pregnant. And uh, Philippe Rains, who was the senior media advisor, rang her and said, um, New York Times is running this tomorrow um, in the midst of all this scandal about Wiener that you're actually pregnant. And she cried and said, um, you know, don't, can you not tell, you know, Hillary, I want to tell Hillary, I've been looking forward to telling Hillary. And anyway, Philippe felt that he had no option but to tell Hillary that this was coming, and so he did. Um, And then she just felt, like, really sad that she never got to be the person to kind of have that moment like and that that's gone forever if you don't get that moment it's gone forever and she never she only has the one child she never got to tell her friends and people close to her guess what i'm having a baby because it was just splashed in this horrific manner all over the paper so it's a very sad um story she's she's still you know she still works for hillary clinton now and they've she's very open in the book about the therapy they've gone through because they have to keep in touch because they have to keep raising their son together and Um, she needs her son to have a good relationship with his dad. And so part of the reason she says she's written the book is because she wants her son to understand himself why she stood by um, Anthony and that Anthony's not all the kind of caricature idiot that he appears to be. Like she talks about him as a husband and a father and when she was working and she says he was exemplary like I came home and he did everything you know all the complaints women often make about their husbands you know I'd go work really hard I came home and he hadn't even bothered to put a load of washing on she's like he just did everything he was totally dedicated and brilliant with our son and and a wonderful husband in that kind of sense he just had this hideous double life going on oh my god um I want to borrow that book from you please have you, uh, I've already uh, actually. No, hang on, Peter, sorry, I've already promised it to my friend Brenda. Oh, that's okay. I'll <laughs> have to. I'll have to actually buy a copy. Shocking. You will, but I recommend it because I think you'll really enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, well, as much as you can enjoy a sad book like that, but it's yeah. very interesting. Hey, can I just quickly run through a couple of other things before we got to go? Um, Plum, which is a book by Brendan Cowell, the actor. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, book about a guy who's an ex very famous ex football player who lives in South Sydney who starts having some weird kind of symptoms and has got um a traumatic head injury from his football career oh okay Brendan Cowell um he's a really interesting guy I heard him um we we did spoke together at this poetry night a while back um, with, I think I banged on at length about you and Leslie, the actor, and he did this poem about a spider and his six-year-old needing him to rescue a spider, which was really fantastic. But Brendan Cowell also did this wonderful poem on this particular night about his uh, sort of 
father being the child of a heavy drinking father anyway it was a great piece of writing that he'd written himself and then I subsequently learnt that he as well as being an actor has written plays he directs he does lots he's of different he's written things. movies too I think I, I'm yeah. sure I've seen a movie that he wrote mm. The thing that's striking about this book is just the sense of place and voice. Like, he really is able to give a very strong kind of sense of these characters in this particular place. And it's almost kind of like, um, I don't know if I'm do- doing this myself because I know Brendan Cowell's written it, but I feel like it, I'm, I'm almost visualising it as like a film in my head as I'm oh, reading right. it. It's really giving that kind of sense. So I've been um, enjoying that. I also read, I know a lot of people in our group are fans of Brene Brown, the American psychologist. She has a new book coming out called Atlas of the Heart, um, which I read the other day and interviewed her. It hasn't gone to air yet, but I'll put a link in the group when it does. It's fascinating. and It's about how human beings find it really hard to identify and name what emotions they're feeling. She's done some research that shows most people will reach for happy, sad or angry when you ask them how they're feeling. Um, And so she's gone and got, I think, about 90 emotions and actually broken down, you know, what is the difference between, say, if you're feeling anxious versus feeling stressed? Or what's the difference between if you say that you envy somebody versus you're jealous of somebody? You know, what are the differences between those things? Because if you clearly articulate what your emotions are, then you're better able to process them and understand where they're coming from. It's a really interesting book and she was really interesting talking about it. And just by sheer coincidence, not because I was a fan of Brene Brown, but because I was a fan of Ted Lasso, Justin, my executive producer, had recommended me listening to Brene Brown's podcast, Unlocked, which is on Spotify. She's got an episode called Unlocked with Ted Lasso. She's a massive fan of Ted Lasso. So she interviewed Jason Sudeikis, who plays Ted, and the guy who plays Beard, who they both write the show together. And so she talks to them about the writing of that show. So it's one of those things that if you're a huge fan of um, Ted Lasso, you would really enjoy hearing them sort of dive down a little bit into it. Um, I wanted to quickly give a shout out to the podcast Journo that Nick Bryant does for the Judith Nielsen um, Centre for Journalism. Oh, I've got that queued in my thing. I didn't know that Nick um, hosted it. That's interesting. Yeah, Nick does it. Um, The episode I listened to was about COVID reporting and how the media did with COVID reporting in Australia. He interviews a guy called Liam Mannix from the Nine Network who's done some brilliant stuff, um, proper explainers, looking at the actual facts and data. Yeah, he's done really good stuff in his newsletter. Really good job debunking a lot of the fear-mongering around stuff that people don't need to be fearful about, like kids and COVID. Um, So Nick sort of unpacks that really well. Uh, James Button, another wonderful series um, by the Nine Network, a print print series by Nine um, about cancel culture. It's a three-part, very thoughtfully, beautifully, objectively done piece of journalism. Um, And also I wanted to give a shout-out to The Game by um, Sean Kelly, which is his book about Scott Morrison, which is a very, I think, interesting and original political book. Often political books are written in a kind of from a political strategy kind of sense, like a TikTok, like this person did this and then this person met with that person and they did this and they did that and, uh, you know, the Prime Minister did this so that he could achieve the following political outcome. This book more goes into looking at that but alongside Scott Morrison's personality and what his remarks might indicate about his psychological motivation for doing things rather than his political motivation for doing things. Um, it's a book that if you hate Scott Morrison will play to all of your biases, but it's a book that if you are just interested in politics, you'll go, oh, that's interesting. I find that a very thoughtful, interesting take. 
So I found it um, just a really original piece of analysis that gave me a lot to kind of think about and chew over. Very well written. Yeah, it is very well written. And I think it's completely different from most political biographies. It's not a biography um, in that he hasn't interviewed the subject. He hasn't interviewed anyone. All he's done is consume all the material that Scott Morrison has handed over publicly so he's kind of writing it from the perspective of a of a voter right like you um it's it's what has been offered and what does it mean um and I think when I first heard that that's what he was doing I thought oh how's that gonna work but actually it's a really really good technique I think and um, interesting and particularly with someone like Morrison who is extremely um you know adept at at um creating an image and prosecuting it um it's kind of the right place to engage with him i think yeah it's really really, i like the book a lot yeah i did too i I was talking to a friend who uh, is a political journalist about it who didn't like it as much as me and his complaint was um oh it's like it assumes um the most base motivation for Morrison at every encounter like he can't even learn how to make a curry without it having some nefarious kind of you know um motive so my friend sort of didn't like it on that account Sean Kelly used to work for um the Labor Party for Julia Gillard so you know and that's well known so he of course he's bringing a certain you know known worldview to it but nonetheless like um Nikki Sava who used to work for Peter Costello and who also um writes for the and has a column for the Nine Network as does Sean Political staffers, I think, write some some of the best analysis out there because they bring this really unique insight from inside the actual machinery and they've seen it up close. Um, and I think that Sean and Nikki are two of my favourite columnists out there at the moment because I just think that their kind of nuance and the observation that they bring and their experience working in politics and just the kind of... They're just both thoughtful and, and clear, crisp writers. Um, I think they're... Fantastic, but yeah, of course, read it. Knowing that Sean used to work for the Labor Party, read it. You know, like like you read anyone's book, bringing that knowledge to it. But I thought it was um, well done. Yeah, it's very perceptive. Um, I know we're out of time, and um, I wanted to mention that I am um, massively looking forward to seeing um, the new Wes Anderson movie. Now, I mentioned this not, but I think they're actually advertising in our newsletter, which is one of those sort of things that makes me go oh am I not allowed to mention it but I am because I bloody am so into Wes Anderson and my 15 year old daughter is um, completely now obsessed with Wes Anderson and so we are highly excited about getting to see that movie in the movie theatre extremely soon Yes, I'm dying to see that as well. Um, you know, I think I've mentioned it before, I follow a thing on Instagram called Accidental Oh, my Wes God, Anderson. it's so good, yeah. It's the best, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's lots of photos that look like scenes from a Wes Anderson film, so. <laughs> um, all right, well. Uh, oh, man, yeah, got to get on, get on with the day job, man. Sounds good. All right, talk to you later. <laughs> see ya. Bye.